Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder that has done the full cycle. Uh, so building, financing, scaling, exiting, so a little bit of everything. So I guess without further ado, Oshin Hanrahan, welcome to the show today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Originally from Dublin, Ireland. How was life there? That's right. Our life in Dublin was good. That was uh, That was many moons ago. Um, but no, I grew up in Dublin and Ireland, just outside the city. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it's, I'm sure Ireland has changed a lot over the last whatever ten years it must have been since I've lived there. Yeah. So what got you into into economics? Why did you go and, and study economics? Uh, I studied economics and business in Trinity in Dublin uh, in I think it was 2002, 2003 through six, and I was always just interested in business. I was interested in how markets work, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to start a business and, you know, grow something and build something. And I guess looking back, I think it was very fortunate. Economics gives you a really strong grounding in a lot more than just the math of business. It gives you a really strong grounding in kind of behavior. And I think what really struck me was around behavioral economics and how people think and how they approach challenges, how they approach markets and how it drives, how it drives interactions. But I guess if I was going back now, I'd probably pair economics up with, uh, with something a little more technical. I think the, you know, the, the opportunity to study something more technical now is something I'd probably lean into, but no, I'm really, really happy. I studied econ and business. So why, why Budapest after uh, studying economics? So Budapest had just joined our Hungary had just joined, uh, the European union, uh, back then and there were a bunch of other Eastern Bloc countries that had joined and I was looking to make a real estate investment and I you know, went out to Budapest, Prague, Warsaw, Krakow, Bucharest and I picked Budapest. I thought it was a great market. I thought it was a really interesting city. I thought there was a lot of opportunity at the time to really build a real estate business and build, um, build something that wasn't just about uh, about making money. It was about building apartments that both helped the community, helped our investors, and helped 
helped uh, helped the local economy. And the the idea that we had at the time was to not just build new apartments, but to take old buildings and increase the density. So we'd go to old 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 apartment buildings in Budapest, and we'd uh, renovate the building and increase the density by building new penthouses in the roof space. So it was kind of a unique model that both made the streetscape better, increased the density, improved a local building, and also obviously uh, provided an economic return. So it was a really interesting model back in you know, 2006 through seven or eight or nine. And whatever happened with his business? Uh, we completed a number of uh, real estate projects. So we ended up buying and renovating and building apartments and building buildings. Um, and then in 2009, I sold the remaining projects that we had and I moved back to moved back to Dublin. And on why did you choose Dublin? Well, I'm originally from Dublin, so I moved back and I was working on a couple of things. I was working on a nonprofit focused on education called the Undergraduate Awards, uh, which is now one of the world's largest undergrad awards programs. It brings together you know, thousands of people every year apply to um, to have their work recognized as the best undergraduate work uh, globally, and we bring them together in Dublin uh, once a year. And I also started a, a small business focused on uh, political technology. So we aggregated data on candidates in elections and syndicated the data to news. And after about nine months, my co-founder and I figured we couldn't scale it. Um, so we actually uh, we sold it. It, it, you know, it was an okay outcome. Uh, and then I moved to London and. I spent a little bit of time studying at London School of Economics, and I spent a little bit of time with Axel there. And when I was there, they actually, um, one, of, one of the portfolio companies was Halo, which was a very early Uber competitor. And that was one of the sparks for starting Handy. It was this idea that you could change how people were buying services. And I don't know if you remember Halo or uh, any of the competitors back in 2010 or 2011, it was an unbelievable experience. You take out your phone or your you know iPhone 3G or 3GS and you press a little button and a black London taxi would show up. You'd get in and it'd bring you somewhere and you wouldn't have to argue with the driver about cash or credit card. And back then it was amazing. And now when it happens and it takes longer than five minutes, you're, uh, you know, you're disappointed and frustrated. So it's just a sign of how much consumer behavior has changed over the last 10 years. When you think about how drastic the uh, the shift to mobile commerce has been, and not just you know mobile commerce in the sense of you know buying goods, but the purchase of services on mobile is just unbelievable. Everything from transport to food to travel to you know ev pretty much everything is now shifted to this uh, this world where you're touching a button on your phone and expecting the world around you to move. And that was one of the the genesis for, for starting Handy. It was this gap in the market for home services and local services where you just don't have a way to buy those services at the touch of a button. And in this case, uh, for example, like working at Axel, I'm sure that that gave you a really nice flavor at uh, looking at projects from a 30,000 foot view and really understanding the dynamics, the strategy, you know, perhaps even though it was just 11 months, you know, at least you were able to see some of the patterns or at least learn from, from those that, really had that pattern recognition. Uh, Axel, I mean, such an, an incredible uh, top-tier VC firm. You know? So, so what, what do you think you, you really got out of that experience that you really took with you and, and, and perhaps you, you knew you were going to implement you know, down the line as a founder? Look, I, I think what you learn from, um, 
from spending time looking at things from an investment perspective is you learn how investors think about opportunities. So you learn the fact that, you know, different investors think about things in different ways. Some think about it from a people first perspective, some think about it from product first, some think about it market first, but all of them are considering all those things. So, you know, the idea of what's the total addressable market, why is this team unique? Why are they special in dealing with this um, in, in, in approaching this problem or dealing with this opportunity? Um, and then of course it's that, perspective of knowing that those three things were so important definitely made it uh, made it easier to tell the story it made it easier to understand exactly you know what the le- the different lens that investors would come to uh, come to a fundraising decision uh, by a, could come to a fundraising decision at and I guess the the other key thing was um, it brought me some of my first investors so uh, some of the folks that I worked with at Excel, uh, joined Highland Capital and went to General Catalyst, and those folks were some of our first uh, seed round investors and our pre-seed investors, actually. Very nice, and 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 actually, Handy started out in in Boston, but then you 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 moved the company to New York. Why did you do that? Yeah, so I started in Boston. I did one year of business school, and in the summer between first and second year of business school, uh, my co-founder and I started working on handy and we were starting with this idea that it would be incredible if you could press a button and book a cleaner or book a handyman and so we started in boston and we actually started two markets relatively uh in in relatively short order so we started the boston market and then very shortly thereafter we opened up in new york and I think what really drew us in was the speed of growth that we saw in New York was just far in excess of what we were seeing in Boston. And I think companies have decisions to make on where they're, where they're going to locate themselves. And there's no, you know, absolute right or absolute wrong. It's a trade-off that you're making to, you know, decide who you want to be located near. So if you're you know, building a, a biotech business, you probably need to be near biotech talent. If you're, incredibly capital intensive business, you probably want to be as located as close as possible to uh, financial markets or financial capital. You may want to be, you know, if you're a heavily regulated business, you may want to, you know, locate next to some of the lobbyists or some of uh, some government agencies. So I think for us, we, we made a decision to say our most important market is New York. We want to be as close as possible to our customers to start with. And I think that advantage or that uh that positioning really helped us grow the business early on because we were just so close to what still is one of the most important markets um for handy and it just embedded us in that market it made it easier for us to figure out what our go-to market strategy was uh what our customers were really using handy for we could interview them we could talk to them we could be close to them we just understood uh, understood the business a lot better by being closer to our customers, and that was a function of uh, a function of being in New York. And uh, the the other the other thing is my wife when I uh, my my now wife um, when I had moved to Boston, she had moved to New York. So we were both in London before. So moving down to New York also brought me closer to her. So that was a, a positive as well. Got it. I mean, obviously, that's a very, very good reason for sure. You know, happy, happy wife, happy life. So uh, 
Absolutely. So, so how did you go about building the founding team? So the founding team, my co-founder and I were actually, um, we were in business school at the same time and we were sharing an apartment. So there was three of us sharing an apartment. It was myself, my co-founder and a third guy. And uh, the, I'm a relatively clean and tidy person. My co-founder is a little messy. And the third guy was one of the messiest people in the entire world. Um, <laughs> so, um, he was not part of the founding team. So it, it was it was really just my co-founder and I. And then we had a couple of other people join early on who were more technical, who um, joined um, who joined us as well for uh, to really make Handy to start. It was called Handy Book at the time, actually. Got it. So obviously, when you're building, you know, a marketplace like like this is is definitely not a not an easy task. So how did you guys go about building the um, the supply and demand? Yeah. So look, I think with any marketplace, with any two sided business, um, it's really important to have one side of the market that is just all in and really, uh, really needs the product. In a dream world, you have two sides of the market that are all in and really, really need the product. I think what we found at Handy was that our pros in the beginning really needed the product to find work. And if you think back to, you know, when the business was founded in, uh, in 2012, the big difference between then and now is that the unemployment rate was very different. So people really needed work a lot more then than they do now. And that meant that we could put up an ad saying cleaners or handymen wanted, and we would get hundreds, if not thousands of applicants. And, you know, an early story around that was, we put up an ad um, online saying cleaners wanted, and um, we probably got four or 500 applicants within 24 hours. And we messaged some of them, asked them to fill in a detailed form, and a couple of hundred of them did. And then we said, hey, why don't we message them and ask them to come for an interview, and we'll do a group interview. And we sent a couple of hundred uh, messages inviting people to come for an interview on a Saturday morning. And we used one of the, the, the innovation spaces at HBS. And it's one of those you know, very nice innovation labs that I think a lot of universities and institutions now have. And we said, hey, show up at nine o'clock, expecting that maybe five or 10 or 20 of the people would show up. And as we're walking across the, the parking lot towards this you know, innovation lab, I notice a crowd outside. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what that crowd is. And as I get closer, I realized that we have caused this crowd and 120 odd people have shown up on a Saturday morning at, uh, at the business school for, for an interview. And obviously we subsequently got in trouble with the school for doing this, but it was an interesting insight into, uh, the fact that our pros were really all in very quickly because they needed work. They really wanted access to, uh, access to jobs in a very flexible way and access to customers. And that unlocked so much potential for us because when we went to advertise to customers, customers were like interested. They were like, yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, great. But they weren't as all in as our pros. If you flip to today when the economy is obviously very, very hot and, you know, uh, you're at a place where unemployment rates are super low, it's almost the opposite where people have more money today and are time poor. So our customers are the side of the market in today's environment 
who desperately need service. So they desperately need things done in their home. And that creates this almost imbalance where our customers are more enthusiastic about Handy today than our pros were, um, sorry, than they were before. Whereas our pros today obviously have more earning opportunity and it's more competitive for us to attract professionals. So the, the, the takeaway is that when you've got a two-sided marketplace, it's about finding out which side is easier to acquire and which side is easier to, uh, to engage early on. And obviously that means that you need to spend time and effort attracting the other side of the market because the side that's easy will, will stay with you and will, uh, will require less effort and less maintenance early on. And obviously, you know, the uh, acquisition of the supplier, the demand is, is definitely critical, but more than that is the, is the retention uh, and optimizing retention. So what did you learn about retention during this journey? Yeah, so the, the, you're absolutely right. The, the retention is critical to, to making the business work. And I, I think what we saw early on was that our customers really wanted repeat cleaning service. So it wasn't, for them, it wasn't getting a one-time cleaning. Um, and I think in order to, uh, in order to drive retention, we flipped from, uh, we flipped from doing uh, one-time cleanings to doing recurring cleanings where you could, you know, book a cleaner to come back again and again and again. And effectively we moved the cleaning business to a subscription model and that subscription model really created a lot of value. Obviously it drove up the lifetime value of the customer, but more than that, it actually drove up customer happiness. So customers were actually happier having the same cleaner come back again and again and again. And that kind of accelerated the growth in the business uh, in a really serious way. And for our pros, it was about flexibility and the ability to decide when to work. So For our pros, they really wanted to decide exactly when they wanted to work. They wanted to decide where they wanted to work and who they wanted to work uh, work with. And giving them flexibility really retained them on the platform. So for our, it, it was really just about unlocking which, what were the features and what were the things that really drove the retention of the individual sides of the market. And I guess obviously, you know, it's a, it's understanding the needs and all of that. But I guess what kind of uh part it plays the onboarding process and then also like really getting them to that aha moment as, as fast as possible. Yeah. So the onboarding is interesting. Um, we first, when we first started handy, we actually onboarded uh, every cleaner and every handyman in person. And as we scaled out the business, we realized obviously that's uh, very hard and very capital intensive and expensive to scale. And What we didn't realize at the time was that it wasn't actually driving a lot of value. Um, we thought that the in-person onboarding was creating a lot of value. And what we realized, and we didn't even realize that we, uh, we tested into it, was if we did remote onboarding, where we essentially created a digital onboarding flow, that it would actually be a better experience for the pro, a better experience for the customer, And it would help us scale faster at a lower cost. So what we what we did was we built out a um, we we built out this digital onboarding flow, and we tested into it by looking at retention, by looking at customer satisfaction, by looking at prosat, and 
it was obviously a really tough decision because we had a whole team dedicated to uh, dedicated to onboarding professionals. And once we built the digital flow, um, we had to make a really tough decision about what to do with that team. And for some of them, obviously there were roles, but for a lot of them, there were not ongoing roles. And it was a, it was a real challenge because essentially the digital flow was doing a better job for our customers and our pros. And it was cheaper, obviously, because it was a digital product at onboarding the pros. And it was, uh, it was a real challenge, but it was uh, eventually it was the right thing to do because it built a better experience and it allowed us to scale faster. And both our customers and pros were happier with that experience than the, uh, than the in-person interviews. Got it. And obviously when you are uh, doing some restructuring, uh, I think that, you know, that, that can impact the, the culture because obviously the, the facts are always going to be the facts, but the way you deliver them is really what matters. So how do you go, how did you guys go really about making sure that, that it would impact, you know, in the least, uh, you know, negative way as possible, the culture that you guys were really carefully building? Yeah. So we had, um, about two years in, we had set out, um, maybe it was three years in, we had set out a culture deck that really explained our mission, really explained our values. And we had made that document public. It's, you know, a hundred page slide deck and it's been viewed hundreds of thousands of times. You can see it online. You just Google handy culture deck. And that publication of our values made it a lot easier to go and have those conversations and act with integrity and do the right thing by our team when we were making these decisions. It gave us an anchor point to say, look, it's really important to us to do the right thing for our customer, to do the right thing for our pros. This is the right thing. And as a result, we're going to go have to make these tough decisions and we're going to do it in the best way possible. And we'll make sure that we obviously, you know, work to find roles for whatever team members we were moving on uh, at other companies. And look, there's no restructuring that's perfect, but I think that if you, you know, go back and you look at it, you say, okay, well, I understand why these people were doing this. And it made it a lot, uh, it made it a lot easier for the people who were remaining to understand the logic. I think it's important to be really crisp, really clear, and really transparent with the team. And, I think that, you know, that series of actions really stuck with us and helped us build a better business overall and a better experience for, for our customers, our pros. And I think over the long term, our team is respectful of the fact that we made tough decisions um, rather than uh, rather than shirking away from them. Got it. And you guys also raised uh, some money for, for this company. So... So how much capital did you guys raise and, and how would you say that those expectations were changing, uh, you know, from financing round to financing round, uh, especially, you know, with, uh, with a company like this where it's like really, you know, marketplace and probably they're really going to look at networking effects, viral loops and all that right. good stuff. So over the course of, I think, four rounds of funding, we raised over $100 million of capital. Um, if you, you know, think through the, 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 the different phases, I'd break it down. The first phase I'd say is the, do you, does anyone care? Does anyone have an idea uh, that's interesting enough for the world to care about? And that's that seed round where um, once we had raised it, we noticed that there were, you know, half a dozen to a dozen competitors in the space very quickly because 
as I, as I said, people did care. So the, the customers wanted to book and the pros really wanted work. So it was very obvious early on that this was a space. And that was the, you know, the expectation of the seed round is, hey, does anyone care enough for you to have early traction? And it went very quickly into an A and a B round where I would frame it as the, the goal was to just win the space. So at that point, people believed the space was real. People believed that individuals were going to book services online that people were going to buy these services and that it was going to be a large category and it became about winning the space and it didn't mean you had to be number one but you had to uh, be in the top two to three two to three players in the space and I, i think that's when it's all about growth it's all about scaling it's not about margin it's not about network effects in the sense of uh sorry it's not about um margin in the sense of network effects and driving optimization it's about network effects in the sense of just driving raw growth in the business and that was when we were competing with companies like homejoy and mop and get made and my clean and hipster made and every other cleaning and handyman company that somehow found its way online um and then i think the third phase is the the figure out how you actually build a long-term sustainable business And that's where we focused on things like uh, remote pro onboarding, optimization to the customer experience, growing out margin, and really building a long-term category. And that was where we raised our C round on the back of. And I think after that, we figured out how to build a business that became you know, profitable and got to a place where it actually was working. And It, it was after that that we started to look at other opportunities. So the, the business had evolved. It had gone from being a direct-to-consumer business in one category to being across a number of categories. And one of the things we discovered at that point was that there was a real opportunity to work uh, with retailers. So the, the last evolution of the business that we've seen before we sold it was where we started to work with retailers like Wayfair and Walmart and others to sell services alongside product. And I think that was a really interesting evolution of the business. So you could go to Wayfair.com and buy furniture and in the cart, you could add installation and assembly or similarly, you could go to Walmart and uh, buy a TV and right there at the checkout, you could buy a TV mounting service. And I think that phase of the business, when you figured out how to make the core work is when you get to do things like that, where you can look at product expansion and service expansion in a different way. And in this case, it's channel expansion. Um, and I think that was one of the things that led to the, you know, the acquisition of the business by, um, by Angie Home Services about a year ago. Got it. So then why don't we talk about the acquisition? At what point does the uh, acquisition, you know, come into place as a possibility? And, uh, you know, make us, make us insiders as to what was, that, what was that process like, you know, how long it took and, and, how, and how it came about. Yeah. So, look, we obviously, as we started to partner with, um, with more retailers, uh, we were having different conversations around how deep those integrations and partnerships would be. And we received some inbound interest. And as a result of the inbound interest, we ended up uh, having a number of conversations. We, well, we essentially had an offer very quickly to sell it. We weren't in market looking to sell it. We had an offer very quickly. Um, and after that, we, you know, our board counseled us to have a number of other conversations and very quickly it became a, a competitive process that 
led to a conversation with Angie Home Services, where they had also been working on building a product similar to Handy for some time. And the rationale there is really simple. At Angie, they get 26 million service requests a year. And for a lot of those service requests, they don't have pros that want to buy the leads. So they, they actually don't have uh, a way to fulfill on those leads in a lot of the categories that Handy serves. And what we could do by putting the businesses together was we could offer more services to our customers. And more importantly, we could offer Handy services to lots and lots of home advisor customers. And that was the thesis for the deal. And you know, I think we met, we'd spent time with uh, the folks at IAC, which is Angie's parent company. Um, and, we, you know, we'd spent time with them over the years. And we really did get to know the folks at Angie Home Services as well, particularly the home advisor folks out in Denver. And it became clear that that was a very large opportunity and that it was a very uh, real case where, you know, one plus one is equal to three, that you could really build out a better experience, a more holistic solution by putting the businesses together. And as a result, we, uh, we ended up completing a, you know, completing the, the transaction in October of 20, 2018. And I've heard that the, um, typically on fundraising, obviously you, you have everything figured out. I mean, you, at least you give that a uh, idea that you have most of the answers at least to to provide to the investors that you're looking to bring into the table but on acquisitions you know really you need to have everything on figure it out because it's not your idea it's the idea of whoever is acquiring you so so can you expand a little bit on this on how you know that storytelling and that process you know like it's different from being in an acquisition to in a fundraising in a capital effort you know raising strategy type of thing yeah so look i i think when you're fundraising at each stage, you're discussing the things that you figured out, and I think you're acknowledging the things that you're hoping to prove with the capital you're raising or the developments you're hoping to raise, or sorry, you're hoping to uh, to solve by raising more capital. And I think there's some parallels to acquisition conversations where with each potential acquirer, Obviously, you describe your business in a way that you think is most relevant to them. And you obviously do have some theories or some hypotheses on how value can be added if you put the businesses together. Um, and, you know, I think you tailor those conversations to a true perspective on what you think uh, the value is. But the acquirer obviously has a different point of view and has a... Uh, has their own point of view on where they think the value can come from. And uh, it's less about going in and talking about where you think the value is. I think in a lot of these cases, it's more about listening to the potential acquirer um, on where they think the value uh, is created. And if they ask you where you think it's created, I'm sure it's perfectly fine to, to come up with that. But in a lot of the conversations we were having, the potential acquirers had already formed a point of view on, uh, where they thought the value was and what it would look like. And what kind of role uh, is the one that, let's say, a board would play uh, to really, you know, push the deal to get done? I mean, what's 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 really the role that, that a board would play? Or in this case, you know, what was the, bo the, the role that your board played to, to get it done? Um, I think our board was, um, 
our board was involved in the process. They, you know, actively pushed us when we had received when we had received an unsolicited offer. Our board actively pushed us to um, to go and get other options and to really consider more of the landscape and really make sure that we were uh, exploring all the relevant options um, that were on the table. So I think a board, obviously, particularly investors who have seen these things play out before many times have a certain level of pattern recognition and a certain, uh, a certain level of awareness of how the process is going to go. And I think that's helpful to, uh, to entrepreneurs who have not necessarily gone through a sale process before. Um, I think they also provide some, um, I think they also provide some leverage and some insight into, uh, how the potential acquirer, maybe thinking about the transaction that as a founder who's really close to it and in the in the weeds day to day, you may not have the distance from it to 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 internalize. Got it. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that we have on the show, Oshin, is saying now, you know, having having built, you know, a, a few companies, you know, under your belt, especially with this one really doing the full cycle at a at a hyper growth scale. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and let's say have a chance to have a chat with that younger Oshin, you know, graduating, you know, with economics, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to that younger self before launching a business and why knowing what you know now? So I think one of the things that, um, one of, one of the things that I've realized is, Whenever anyone's starting anything, whether it's a business or whether it's a project or whether it's an internal company initiative or whatever it is, they have some belief in something that they believe to be true and everyone else hasn't yet figured it out. So for us, we believed that people were going to book services online and home services online. And we believe that the rest of the world hadn't yet had that realization. And whatever that belief is that you've got, whatever that nugget is that you believe in, you need to write it down in a really crisp, clear way. And then you need to go like crazy on just raw focus on proving out whether you're correct or not. and. On some cadence, you need to check in objectively and, you know, see if you're making progress on proving that, you know, you're correct or incorrect, but you don't need to second guess yourself day to day. You need to spend most of your time just trying to prove that you're correct. And, you know, I think back to the, the 2012 when a lot of investors basically said, no, there's no way people are going to book home services online. And at this point we've done it eight years later, seven years later, we've done it millions and millions and millions of times. Um, it's obvious. And I think with any idea, the more you can be just really crisp and just write it down and have it on a flashcard so that you can look at and say, yeah, am I spending most of my time trying to prove this thing out or am I getting distracted with other things is a very simple way of just catalyzing behavior and maintaining focus and building a team and focusing that team on one singular thing 
And it may not always be the thing. Like at this point, we've proven it. And there's like other things that we're trying to prove. And there's many different aspects of the business. But early on, just a raw, it's a tool for just a raw level of focus that I think a lot of, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs can get distracted, you know, in 17 different directions at once. And I think that's a really helpful way of just maintaining focus. Very cool. Very cool. So, Oshin, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, they can just get me on Twitter. Oshin Hanrahan on Twitter. Amazing. Well, Oshin, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.